Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Judy Lai Norling is a COO at Carbon Mapper, an organization developing a new way to locate, quantify, and track carbon emissions from air and space. Prior to joining Carbon Mapper, Judy spent 14 years at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in both business and engineering roles. Judy holds a master's degree in math and economics from the University of Texas and the University of Wisconsin, respectively. In this episode, you'll learn more about Judy's early childhood immigrating from Taiwan to the U.S. and how working at her parents' restaurant shaped her goals, how Judy spent the first few years of her career experimenting with different jobs before landing a job at NASA, and Judy's advice on how to create more opportunities in your career. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hey, Judy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. I'm really excited to be here today. I'm very excited to uh, have you on as well. And um, first off, you are going to be the closer of the year, as in you're the last (laughs) guest on the podcast for 2021. So uh, it will be a great way to kind of like bookend uh, the year. So thanks for that. Secondly, I can see in your video, and the, the listeners won't be able to see this, a little picture of a spaceship. Um, so for those who don't know your background, uh, can you share a little bit more about the significance of the photo? Uh, sure. It's, it's actually, um, a, uh, what do you call it? Embroidered picture of, uh, of the space shuttle. So the United States shuttle with the Canadian arm, Oh <laughs> wow! Asked, Canada. Right? Canada <laughs> yeah. built that arm for one of the space shuttles. Um, and I put this up here for a couple of different reasons. One, it ties back to my early interest in space exploration, which really influenced a lot of my childhood, but two, it was a gift from my husband and it's kind of a little quirky piece of art. So I like that aspect of it as well. So it's a little bit personal. It also speaks to a little bit of my more creative quirky side, but then ties back to the the thing that I actually do work on these days, which is uh, space exploration. Which is crazy, right? Because I feel like, okay, 2021, now space tourism, space exploration, it's all over the headlines, obviously, thanks to a couple uh, of the richest people in the world, like making it much more uh, commonplace and a bunch of space companies going public. But you've obviously had a very deep interest in space and obviously practical experience for a long time. So can you share a little bit more about um, what first intrigued and piqued your interest in space when you were younger and then how you kind of uh, went down the career path of working at NASA? Sure. So I actually attribute a lot of my interest in space and science to one particular person. Uh, I grew up here in Southern California in the San Gabriel Valley area. My parents immigrated here when I was four years old. I was born in Taiwan and they came to the United States for a better life. And so they came and um, uh, established a restaurant. So they opened a restaurant that happened to be a couple of blocks away from the California Institute of Technology. So Caltech, Mm -hmm. the university. And it's also down the road from NASA his jet propulsion lab. And because we had this restaurant, we had a lot of regular customers and uh, who became very close family friends. And one of those customers was my uncle Will, you know, not my real uncle, but an elder. Mm-hmm. So I called him <laughs> uncle. And he was 
instrumental in really? my childhood and it really helping me to figure out what I was interested in. He would always bring me all these brochures and stickers from NASA, you know, with these pictures of outer planets and space exploration. He bought me my first computer. He encouraged wow. me to learn how to program. You know, he's the one who really got me interested in physics and astronomy and science. You know, my parents were typical Asian immigrant parents. Um, uh, they would have wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, but because of my uncle Will, he really cemented my early interest in science. Mm. And this was from a young age, just that open, you open Pandora's box into STEM and even understanding what, what a career path at NASA and in space looks like. Because <laughs> like for me, and I think your average um, person, th there's no pathway um, or clarity of what that looks like. But it seems like you had that thanks to Uncle Will early on. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when I was a kid, I definitely thought about becoming an astronaut. That was a big thing for a few years. And so I was thinking, well, what can I study in order to become an astronaut and to be working in space? So for a long time, I thought I would be interested in astrophysics and astronomy. And I took those classes and they were interesting. But then after a while, I decided that I, I kind of, um, shifted focus a little bit, but I was still very much interested in science and nature. So in high school, I was thinking, oh, I really love to do something with the environment, you know, mm. maybe something in biology or doing research in the rainforest or something like that. Um, so, you know, I definitely was aware of that all growing up and I made sure to bone up on all of my science classes and took all the AP classes as much as I could um, and was really trying to be well prepared for a good solid education, knowing that I wanted it to, you know, probably go to graduate school, probably get a PhD, do research, and then uh, eventually become a scientist of some sort. Wow. So you knew that pretty early on. It wasn't a question of like, going down the science and like uh, STEM path, right? Yeah, I, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say probably from at least junior high through high school through high school, um, I was really interested in science and I, I figured that I would be doing something along those lines. Um, and it was definitely still an interest. So when I got to university, I ended up going to the University of Southern California um, and I started taking, you know, physics and biology and chemistry and mathematics. Um, and as I started talking to my uh, teaching assistants who were you know, doing research at the time, and I started taking lab classes, I realized, I don't think I actually like doing this very much. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that actually, that realization came to me fairly early on, like maybe my first or second year in university. Uh, but I still loved uh, I still loved mathematics a lot. I really loved the purity of mathematics. I loved mm. the logic. I loved the absolute truth of mathematics. So I decided that I was going to major in mathematics um, and, and really, you know, become an expert in that field. But at the same time, I also had a practical streak in me. So I remember thinking I should have a backup plan. And mm -hmm. I actually poured through the entire university catalog, looking at all of the different types of majors that they offered. And what caught my eye was the business school. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, huh, maybe I'll start taking some business classes and get a backup degree in business administration, just in case something goes wrong. <laughs> so that's what I ended up doing. I double majored in mathematics and business business in university. Okay, that's, I mean, how are your parents kind of supporting or with you in this journey? Because I feel like <laughs> over stereotyping, uh, you're doing your undergrad in math, I guess that's like pretty, 
pretty acceptable to your parents or or was it, it otherwise? It was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I think um, somewhere along the lines, you know, because my parents had a restaurant all while I was growing up, they worked all the time. And so they, yeah. they worked nights and weekends. And so I didn't actually get to see them very much. The other thing is that my parents, uh, they didn't go to college themselves. And so I was the first in our immediate family to mm. go to college. They didn't necessarily know how to navigate a lot of that. So because they weren't sure what was happening and they were really busy just trying to make sure provide a good living for themselves and for me and my sisters you know they you know they gave me a lot of pressure to be a doctor or a lawyer but uh in high school i kind of started to branch out and start exploring and doing my own thing and they were so busy that i don't think they really had a lot of time to protest that and luckily when you have a daughter who's studying math that still gives you a lot of street cred with the other asian parents so so that gave me uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> so it sounded like a lot of your like youth was really self-guided right like you're on presumably staying out of trouble, you're just doing things that were interested, interesting to you, you had mentors like Uncle Will who are kind of helping mm -hmm. you like uh, have a clearer picture of what you wanted to do. Um, were there any, any other curiosities in terms of like career paths or interests that you were exploring when you're earlier in um, your childhood that you ended up not pursuing or um, was it quite focused? I well, uh, I actually was really into music. You know, they started mm. me on piano lessons. We took many years of piano lessons, and then several years of violin. And then in junior high, I actually started playing the trombone and eventually mm. the tuba. Wow. And so I was really hardcore into the classical music scene. Uh, I went for all of the uh, all of the regional orchestra, youth orchestras, and the state level youth youth orchestras. And when I got to the point where I was applying for university, I seriously considered double majoring in music. Um, and I almost auditioned for Juilliard. Oh, but wow. I, I think I was a little bit scared um, and still a little bit too practical. So I backed away from that. And it turns out that my high school graduation was the last time that I ever did anything with music. So that kind of fell to the wayside. And during university, I just really concentrated on, you know, finishing my degree and trying to get to a real solid career. Mm, very interesting. Um, do you play the trombone or any instruments now, even just for fun <laughs> or something you've thought about? Yeah, I I don't anymore, which I really regret. I wish I had continued to play the piano at least. I tried to pick up the mandolin while I was uh, during the pandemic, but that didn't really take. But I still really appreciate good music, so mm -hmm. you know I, I make the I take the time it. to you know go to concerts and and yeah. still enjoy that quite a bit. Right. Yeah. And uh, before we pivot to to more discussion on your career, also just wanted to to. Um, hear about any lessons you learned from watching your parents work so hard and sacrifice with the restaurant oh, yeah. and also know whether or not like uh was that were you actually working there part-time because i you know, <laughs> know a lot of folks who have family businesses that's just it's not even a question you that's what yeah. you do on the weekends evenings whenever you yeah. have free time that's a family business so could you share For more sure. about that for sure. I, I started working in the restaurant starting from peeling potatoes in the back from when I was maybe six years old. Yeah. Um, and as I grew older, my parents didn't make us work in the restaurant, but I actually chose to work in the restaurant because that was one way that I could actually spend time with my parents because yeah. they were so busy and it was such a big part of their lives. But the restaurant really became this huge extended family for me as mm. well. You know, and one lesson that I really took away from my parents uh, and the whole restaurant environment was that my parents were all 
always really friendly to all of their customers. They didn't speak great English, but they still welcomed everybody with open arms. And they really taught me a lot about customer service and about meeting different people and exposing yourself to different people. So those are lessons that I still you know, take to heart to this day. Yeah, just like treating everybody with dignity and humility and kindness, right? Regardless. Of yeah, for sure. And out of curiosity, was it a Chinese restaurant? It was a, a half American diner and half oh. Chinese food. So it was a diner that had actually um, been in um, been in business since the 1950s. Wow. Uh, and then prior to the, us taking it on, a Taiwanese family had owned it and then we took it on. So they it was still this weird combination of Taiwanese food and classic American hamburgers and fries. <laughs> yeah, the, the pure fusion before fusion became a thing, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and it, it kind of reminds me of a documentary, I think it's called The Search for General So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. which, you know, for me, I, you know, I'm Canadian, but Canadian, American, Canadian, Chinese, American, Chinese food is all kind of the same and realizing that so much of what we're used to is actually just the way that, um, you know, the restaurant owners were adapting to the tastes of the community, yeah. but that in itself became <laughs> its own type of cuisine. Sometimes I actually don't want quote unquote real Chinese food. I want Totally. American, Chinese, Canadian, <laughs> Chinese, broccoli, beef, general so's. Completely, <laughs> yes. Uh, fun. Yeah, um, I there. So you did your undergrad um, in math and also business. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about like what was going through your mind as you're nearing graduation and kind of deciding, okay, now I have to jump into the real world. What do I want to do with my life? Uh, I don't know how much I joined the real world. Uh, so for a long time, for a long time, I love the university atmosphere. I love this idea of molding young people and helping to shape their lives. And in business school, I fell in love with a uh, Harvard Business School style case studies. So mm. I had this huge grand plan. I was going to become an academic. First, I was going to get my PhD in math because I loved math. And then I was going to get my PhD in business. So I started down that path. I got into the PhD program in mathematics at the University of Texas at Austin. And wow. I got there and it kicked my butt. Um, I have to say my entire life before that, you know, I, I never really had to study. I kind of understood things right off the bat. Things came easily to me. But at the graduate school level of mathematics, it was so hard and so complex and so abstract that I just could not wrap my head around it. Mm. And to be really honest, at that level of math, I don't know that there's any level of studying that I could have done to really get myself through it. So that was a really tough realization. It took me a couple of years to uh, come to grips with the reality that this was something that I started that I was not going to be able to finish. And so I had to figure out, okay, how do I exit? How do I finish up a master's degree here? And then how do I figure out my next steps in life? So I did finish my master's degree in mathematics. And then I proceeded to, you know, my plan was to get my PhD in business. Well, the problem was, that the dot-com bubble had just burst and mm. everybody was going back to school. So there was all this competition. I ended up not getting into any of the business schools that I had applied to, but I did get into several programs in economics. So I decided to start my PhD in economics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Um, and I got there and I hated it almost immediately. And so this time I was smart. I recognized it right away. I cut my losses and I left after nine months. So that's how I got my second degree in, in uh, economics. Wow. I, that seemed, I mean, 
when you talk about it, it sounds like a simple decision, but I'm sure when you were in it, like so much of your mind, energy, passion was kind of focused on going down this path and achieving, you know, a certain um, status and level within the academic world. But yeah. even within nine months, you're able to kind of have that reality check and be like, actually not worth it. Was that, yeah. was that a tough decision or did you just know it in your bones? Like this is not a good fit and it was a lot safer I, than you thought. Yeah, I definitely knew it wasn't a good fit and then I needed to change things because I mean, life is too short. I was smart enough to realize that I didn't want to spend my entire life as a slog doing something that I didn't enjoy. As right. I was talking to professors and learning about what they do for research and how long it takes to get results, it just didn't sound like the way I wanted to be mm. spending in my life. And so I knew that this is this is not the right path. Um, it was really hard for me to you know, um, realize that, okay, I'm not going to become an academic after all. I don't know what I'm going to do. The economy is really bad. Uh, <laughs> it took me, it, it actually took up a lot of my 20s, you know, going through this path, yeah. going through graduate school, trying to find a job. I ended up uh, once I left academia, the economy was not great. So I had to basically take whatever jobs that I could get. Um, I did a variety of things. I did business development for a small government contractor. I worked in financial services, uh, doing retirement consulting for 401k plans. And I became a financial analyst uh, for the U.S. Department of Transportation. I did a variety of things. And it was tough during that time because I had friends who had gotten into the tech world before the bubble burst and their careers were skyrocketing. Mm. So that was really tough. And I really, you know, dealt with several years of reconciling where my position was in life versus where my friends were. And, you know, yeah. what are my parents bragging rights there? So that, that, that was a little, that was definitely a hard time to go through. Mm. So it sounds like, I mean, similar to my path in my early twenties, I was just trying to figure it out. And a lot of exploration not exploitation and um when i was in it i was like oh my god what am i like where where is this going to lead because it wasn't very mm -hmm. linear yeah um and you know you you mentioned you spent some time in bd financial management i think you're also an instructor in mathematics mm -hmm. uh, for a little bit and then in 2007 you ended up at nasa so how did that how did those dots connect and was that meant to, was that a path that you kind of carved out for yourself or an opportunity that ended up on your lap through it was total it was total serendipity so i had this contract as a financial analyst for the u.s department of transportation that ended after a year so i put my resume online at the time and three days later a recruiter reached out to me from the nasa jet propulsion lab now uh contrary to what most people think you know most people think of nasa as scientists and engineers but i actually started at nasa as a business person so i was what was called a business administrator and then shortly after that i i switched to becoming a financial analyst. So I started on the business side of the house oh, at NASA JPL. And I did that for several years, um, about six or seven years early on in my career. And um, at first it was uh, it was not necessarily what I expected, but it was a good job and it was science adjacent. You know, I got to be around super interesting people and we overall as an agency, we were working on such great things. You know, the Jet Propulsion Lab is the NASA center that sends rovers to Mars or spacecraft to Jupiter or the Voyager spacecraft that's gone to the edge of the solar system and beyond. So being in that environment and being around people who are working on that, who are really interesting, that was our 
already really cool for me. So that that tied me over pretty well. Wow. So even the opportunity to start at JPL wasn't through Uncle Will or another like network. It was really just <laughs> online resume matched with the system or HR. And then that's yep. how you got your foot in. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I got my foot in the door. But of course, there was a ton of excitement because it when, when I got the letter from the recruiter, it awakened all this excitement in me from when I was a kid. It was like, this was my childhood dream. I get to work right. in a place that I wanted to work at when I was a kid. <laughs> and so uh, so that that was really fun. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's kind of like you can connect the dots looking backwards, but not forward. And like hearing just your initial interest in space and uh, the doors opening and then ultimately getting this opportunity is super cool. Yeah. Um, what about just like, you know, I feel like even for me, when I first got a job at Google, it's like, oh, this is good. I don't even know how I got <laughs> my foot in the door. And it yeah. must have been a similar feeling for you starting at NASA. Um, what were some of the kind of um, kind of uh, biggest surprises that you found when you first, you know, your first few years at NASA compared to what you were expecting. And again, it could be both like pleasant surprises or on the other <laughs> side, things that you're like, wait, it, maybe it feels like just like working for any other big company. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, any surprises early on that you'd want to share about? I, I think the thing that I was most surprised about, because I had just come from academia, right, where, you know, we were, you're all young students in your 20s, you're spending your entire life obsessing about passing your qualifying exams and doing your research. And other than going to a, the pub on a Friday night to blow off some steam, uh, people didn't really have a lot of different interests. And that was always something that was hard for me when I was uh, in graduate school, because I, I'm fairly eclectic. I love art and music and theater and dance and I didn't identify with any of my classmates on that front so when I got to uh, when I got to NASA one of the things that honestly surprised me the most is that people had hobbies um, and I think part of that is because once you're past the grind of graduate school you finally land yourself in a good job that's stable and well-paying and now you have time to explore things so not only was I working with people who were you know, fantastic scientists and engineers, but they had all sorts of passions outside of work. So I met tons of artists and dancers and people who were triathletes and, you know, people who were taking flying lessons and learning how to fly planes and helicopters outside in their spare time. So so that was a really pleasant surprise. And it really widened my view of just what scientists and engineers could be. Uh, and, and again, it was real privilege to be around those types of people. And one of the lessons I learned was that even though my own job wasn't particularly glamorous at the time, um, it was still great to be part of an organization that was doing something interesting and working with interesting people that I enjoyed spending my time, my days with. Mm, very cool. And it's, it's, it, I, that kind of shift of um, kind of mindset of like just trying to focus on the achievement and getting, you know, the specific job and climbing up the ladder. And to your point, once you kind of reach a certain environment where there's kind of that psychological safety of like, okay, this is a great place to work. Um, mm -hmm. You'll be valid in your job, but you can also, and you should also kind of figure out what else energizes you. It must've been nice to see that, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And before yeah. I get into like the <laughs> when I, my career started exploding at NASA, I will point out that the first five, six years that I was there, you know, I was doing this financial analyst job. I was working on really small projects, nothing that anybody ever would have heard of or anything like that. Um, and so I did take the opportunity to explore a lot of side projects. I did a ton of volunteering work on the side. I, I worked on a lot of uh, with a lot of local p political campaigns. Um, you mentioned that I was an instructor of mathematics. For a couple of years, I would actually get up early in the morning. I would teach a 7 a.m. math class at the local community college. Then I would go to NASA, work a full day at my financial analyst job. And then I was part owner of a coffee house at the time. So I'd go to the coffee house and work at the coffee house until one or two in the morning. <laughs> so doing all of the things uh, related to that. And then on my days off, I would still go to the theater or go to concerts or go to art galleries and really take advantage of all of that time. I didn't have a TV back then, and this was before Netflix was streaming. So, I, so people ask me, like, how do you do all this? And, and it was it really wow. was I was making up for all that lost time in my 20s, when all I did was study and think about, you know, getting through graduate school. Yeah. And I made up for it in the first five years. That I, I mean, probably not even just your mid 20s, right? It, it goes back to childhood when we kind of are doing the piano lessons, Kuma, mm -hmm. and uh, studying. And <laughs> So it must have been nice to have a little bit of space, but you were still very packed with your um, your agenda. So kind of going back to your NASA experience, as you <laughs> mentioned, you were at um, kind of doing more of a business role for the first six, seven years. And then right. I think you transitioned into more of an engineering role or org. Can you share yeah. more a little bit more about how you made that switch and the type of work you were doing um, once you left the business side of things? Sure. So what happened was I had been a financial analyst for a few years and eventually I worked my way up and I actually became the business and cost lead for the Mars 2020 rover mission. So the mm. rover that just launched uh, last year and is now up on Mars, which is really, really cool. Um, so, you know, I had just been building, slowly building my reputation as a business person. And then um, because of some good luck and timing, I ended up on this project, which eventually grew to be this really big project. And so I was a business and cost lead for the Mars 2020 mission. And as the mission itself started to grow, I became really good friends with the person who was in charge of the power system. And he found out that I had a master's degree in mathematics. And he said, don't work in business, come work for me, I'm going to give you a job as an engineer. So he actually gave me an opportunity to make the switch from the business side of the house over to the engineering side of the house. So I became a power systems engineer for a few years. Um, I started working again on the Mars 2020 rover. I was looking at all aspects of the power system from the solar panels to the um, uh, power electronics to the batteries to the nuclear power source that's on the back of the rover. Um, and then I started working on other small projects. Uh, I did that for a few years. And after a while, it started to become uh, kind of tedious. Uh, a couple of things happened there. One was that the work became more and more focused on specific electrical engineering tasks. And I'm not an electrical engineer, and I'm, I don't really have a passion for electrical engineering. And the other big, huge thing was that I went from working on a project at the project office level where I could see all the different parts and you know knew what the big picture was to sitting in a cubicle by myself for seven hours a day. And that took a big toll on myself and uh, you know my mental health mm -hmm. 
So, but even even that initial switch over to the engineering side with your math background, did you feel like you had this like skills and knowledge to hit the ground running, or was there kind of a steep learning curve as well uh, when there you was, first made that move? There was definitely some learning. You know, I had to. Luckily, I had a really solid uh, physics education in my and in my university days, so I could rely a lot on that. And um, I wasn't an electrical engineer. I was what's called a systems engineer. So we're really gathering requirements and writing documentation, yeah. talking to the other teams, the other subsystems, and figuring out what the interfaces are. So a lot of it was more about communication and organization and translating that into documentation. So it's not actually so much on the, the math and engineering side of things at the beginning. And then eventually it started to become more and more about engineering. And that's when I, I, I started to struggle and, and kind of lose my interest. Got it, got it. Um, yeah. And again, you've had a storied 14 year career at NASA. We could spend another hour <laughs> probably talking yeah. about each job and each role, um, but you did end up making the move to Carbon Mapper, which is where you are the COO today. Um, can you talk a little bit more? Number one, for those who haven't heard about Carbon Mapper, what the organization does, and then number two, um, how this opportunity came about, and kind of your decision-making process of leaving NASA to to join Carbon Mapper. Sure. So um, let's see. How do I want to tackle this? Um, sorry, I need to take a little break here and have some water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I can I can do a, a quick uh, voiceover on like Carbon Mapper. Um, my understanding is, you know, it's really providing a more precise way to locate, quantify, and track methane and CO two emissions from air and space. Um, it sounds like that this is not currently being done, right? Which is kind of mind boggling in terms of there not being a unified and uh, like maybe a more objective way of quantifying um, all these different metrics today. And it seems like Carbon Mapper is really created to in partnership with universities, NASA, JPL, um, and a few other foundations to actually do this at a much more uh, scalable way. Um, but correct me where I'm wrong, because I've, I've only done a little bit of research on this so far. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, so let me back up and, and tell you a little bit about Carbon Mapper. Um, so Carbon Mapper is a new nonprofit startup, and we have a public mission to accelerate climate change action by providing carbon dioxide and methane emissions data free and open to the public. And the way we're doing this is we're actually going to be building satellites using instruments called imaging spectrometers, which can see carbon dioxide and methane emissions at the level of individual facilities. And so that's something that is not currently happening now. There are satellites up there which can measure methane. But they do it kind of on a regional scale and they, you can't figure out exactly where the emissions are coming from. So with the carbon mapper satellites, we can actually figure out precise locations of the emissions, provide an estimate of how much those emissions are. And the reason this is important is that it turns out that there's a very small number of facilities which are actually responsible for a large portion of methane emissions. So by being able to identify those facilities, we can then work with those companies and operators and the local regulators to try to tackle the methane emissions problem. A lot of these emissions uh, can be directly repaired, like maybe it's because of a leak uh, in mm -hmm. a pipeline, or you know they can be improved through best practices say, in landfill management or agricultural management. Got it. So if I'm understanding it right, and again, keep me honest, um, 
Right now, um, the measurement is done more regionally, so not nationally. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, the technology, it's not using spectro spectrometers. Is that what you mentioned? Uh, there are uh, different satellites are using different technologies. So there are yeah. some there are some satellites using imaging spectrometry, but they don't they see it at a regional scale. Um, there is also a Canadian company that can see at the finer scale, but they're limited in geographic scope. So they they only see a very small part parts of the world, whereas our satellites are actually going to cover the entire world. And another difference um, there is that, that that particular company is a commercial company. So they sell their data, whereas the data that Carbon Mapper is going to be collecting, we are going to make open and public on our website 90 days after observation. So we'll be covering the entire world. We'll be able to see at the level of individual facilities, and then our data will be free and open to the public. Great. Um, and how did this opportunity come a, come about for you? And was that a hard decision for you to um, kind of pick up and leave NASA after 14 years and pursue this? Yeah, so what had happened in my career at NASA JPL is that after I, I eventually got out of engineering and I found myself in earth science, what happened at that point was that I was almost at the verge of leaving NASA because I really wanted to work on things that were directly impactful to society. And luckily, I had a really supportive boss and he said, hey, no, there's all this earth science work that we're doing here at NASA. And so why don't you go try that? So I eventually worked my way up to to manage several projects in the earth science division. Um, and one of my very last projects that I was asked to manage was a methane project um, that is being run by my current boss, uh, my CEO, Riley Duran. He still mm -hmm. has a research fellowship back at NASA JPL. So he was actually looking for somebody to run his research task. So when I was talking with him about the research task, he mentioned to me that he was starting this nonprofit called Carbon Mapper. And as he was describing all the different things that Carbon Mapper is going to do and all the different tasks that had to be done in order to get to to accomplish the mission, I thought to myself, I know how to do all of that. And so I actually just blurted out to him. I said, if you're looking for a chief operating officer, let me know. And I said it at the time and I thought, okay, well, maybe he'll call me in a year or two years down the road. And three months later, he called me and he said, the job posting is up. I want you to apply. So I applied. And a few weeks later, I interviewed and I got the job. That's amazing. And I mean, it kind of shows a power of intentionality and also almost like asking what for what you want, which, you know, for some cultures, especially Asian cultures or the immigrant mindset might feel a little bit unnatural, but it's amazing how it worked out for you. So I love that story. And I mean, even, you know, when you're you're mentioning your conversation with Riley and you mentioned this idea of like, oh, if you ever need a COO specifically, Mm -hmm. give me a shout or, you know, think of me. Um, did you have a very clear idea of what a COO does or did? You know, I've never um, been that close to one, but, or did, yeah, how, how did you think about applying that label to kind of your future opportunity that you'd be a good fit for? Um, <laughs> COO can mean so many different things in different industries. So I won't say that I was 
targeting what a COO was doing, but as yeah. he was describing the work that Carbon Mapper needed to do, um, I was already processing in the back of my mind, okay, you're going to have to grow a team. You're going to yeah. have to, you know, get these major contracts underway with NASA and with Planet and these universities. We're going to have to have a research program. We're going to have to have an airborne program, which is something that I have a lot of expertise and experience in. You're going to have to have HR. You're going to have to have IT. You're going to have to have documentation and media and communications. I have experience in all of those things. So I was really comfortable in being able to speak up and say, hey, I can help you out here. And so, you know, I really just took it and grabbed the opportunity. Mm, great. So what does a day-to-day -day look like for you? And I know maybe that's like a common <laughs> question, um, but how would you describe your work today and at least like your priorities and how you focus your time? Sure. Um, I do. I joke with people. I do everything that's behind the scenes. So uh, right now, Carbon Mapper, the nonprofit, is still a small organization. So I'm the first point of contact for everything having to do with our contracts, financials, HR, IT, cybersecurity. Um, I've also been the acting chief financial officer for the last oh, six wow. months. I've yeah. also been the head of our data system for the last few months. Now we've hired people to take on those tasks, uh, which is great. Um, so, uh, you know, I do all of these different things. I, but I would say that in the last six to eight months, my primary focus has been growing the business and growing the program. So we went from four employees when I joined in April to 12 people now. And for the overall public part, public private partnership, we went from about 20 people to over 100 people now. Wow. Amazing. And what about funding? Can you share, you know, whatever is public? Um, how easy or challenging it has been to secure funding and how much of your personal time you spend on that. Sure. So I came in um, after a lot of the funding was raised. So we yeah. are very lucky in that Carbon Mapper has a group of philanthropists who are dedicated to the cause of climate change action. And so prior to me joining, a small group of people had come together, including including my boss, and they had raised over $100 million from private donors to fund the Carbon Mapper program and to fund the first two satellites. That's great, especially, you know, having worked in the nonprofit sector myself, I know that can always take up <laughs> so much mind share of the C-level, yep. right? And this, yeah. especially if you're working on very short uh, funding cycles. So it's good that you can kind of park that aside for a little bit and focus on, you know, the immediate task at hand. Yeah. And that also, it, it helps with a few different things. You know, one, it really helped with my decision to leave NASA and to join a startup, knowing mm -hmm. that they already had the funding secured. So I wouldn't have to worry about our stability for several years to come, you know. And the other thing I want to point out is this, the timing of this effort could not be more perfect. You know, this is the decade that we really have to take action against climate change and global yeah. warming. There's all these reports saying that if we want to meet the Paris Agreement of keeping warming global warming to below 1.5 degrees centigrade, we have to do it this decade, if not in the next five years. At the same time, the technology is finally ready. It's finally come down in cost to the point where we can mass produce these things and launch them, you know, without spending a billion dollars every time and waiting 10 or 20 years between missions. So it's really an exciting time and the right time to be taking this action. Yeah, amazing. Okay, next question, Judy, is curious to know how much of your career success would you say has been attributed to skill versus luck? Um, and do you have any advice on how you recommend people increase their luck? 
Yeah, um, I think that it's definitely been a combination of both. So obviously I've amassed a lot of work experiences, which has helped me out. Um, but then there's also been the luck of knowing the right people and being mm -hmm. able to stumble into the right opportunities. But really the the trick to finding more luck and finding those opportunities that I really want to impart on everybody is that I really encourage people to speak up. If you're interested in becoming a leader, especially, you know, with Asian folks, you tend to be, you tend to be introverted. You tend to believe that if you do hard work, then you'll be recognized. That I'm sorry to say is not necessarily true. And I really encourage people to speak up and go after what they want, you know, um, and this can take the form of several different things. One is letting people know that you're interested in taking mm -hmm. on more leadership roles. Like, you know, maybe you want to be a project manager. Maybe you want to take a, be a group lead. Um, another thing is just volunteering and taking on those opportunities. Get yourself in front of senior management. You know, if there's an opportunity for you to give a presentation or take on, take charge of a task, you know, go for it. And for the introverted type, who may not feel comfortable speaking up, like literally speaking up in front of a crowd, in front of a meeting, you know, you can you can tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, can I, you know, can I speak with you one on one after the fact? And you can have a more quiet conversation about that. But the key is to really get yourself out there, to get your name out there, establish your reputation, you know, let people know that you're interested. I think a lot of Asian folks just, you know, aren't in the habit of doing that. And it's something I learned a long time ago. And yeah, it feels awkward at first and embarrassing, but if you practice it, it actually gets much easier. Yeah, great advice. And I mean, it can, kind of came to fruition with the opportunity uh, with Carbon Mapper, right? You, you mentioned how you kind of suggested the idea of uh, hiring you as CEO to Riley and that obviously <laughs> right. manifested. And I've seen it personally for myself where it's like, what kind of got us here won't get us where we want to go. And yeah. I feel like, especially for um, you know, the Asian community where academia and academics and getting good grades is really our main mission in our youth and childhood, in addition to maybe having some fun. Um, we assume kind of that formula of studying hard, putting your nose down and having mm -hmm. an objective grade will translate it into later career success, but not always the case, right? So totally agree with the advice thing. Um, I know we're almost at time, so I just wanted to wrap up with two final questions. Number one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> um, I, I'm going to get a little on the personal side here. Uh, the piece of advice for my younger self is one, I wish I had been smarter about money. So, uh, you know, when I was young, I made some lifestyle choices. I was really into fancy cars and nice clothes. So I wasn't really smart about that. And I realized later on that, you know, financial freedom gives you freedom. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I wish I had done, and I highly advise to everybody is take the time to travel before mm. when you're still young and before you have a lot of responsibilities and i'm not just talking about a week in europe or hawaii but like deep travel three weeks or three months in a region you know um growing up asian we knew we only knew about packaged bus tours and i didn't mm -hmm. understand about budget travel and backpacking but you can you can see the world on or you know parts of the world on very little money so i i definitely encourage people to to do that Mm. Were there any specific travels in in your um, youth that really stuck with you? Uh, in my youth, not yeah. so much. Or more I, recently. 
Yeah, because uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to travel when I was young, but I didn't know how. I mean, that was part of, you know, like my parents, uh, since they didn't go to college, you know, they always told me to save money, but they didn't know yeah. how, right? Yeah. Um, but I'd say, um, you know, I spent time traveling through China and I would love to go back because I just barely scratched the surface on that. Um, I would love to go back and spend more time in Taiwan, exploring my roots, getting to know our family history, you know, and we're all, we're getting older. My relatives are getting older. So I definitely want to do that while there's still time and people still have those memories intact. Mm, awesome. Um, and then you kind of touched on it in your last answer, which is this concept of money, right? And curious to know, has money or how has money kind of factored into career decisions for you? Um, has it been a primary factor or kind of uh, not not the forefront of the decisions? Yeah, uh, my parents wish it was a factor, but it's never really been a factor for me. Uh, I've never been really been driven by money, but I, I have seen the importance of stability. So mm. um, so that was probably more of a driver. Yeah. Great. And then to wrap up, you did mention um, when we we're kind of doing the introduction uh, that you're a big fan of podcasts. So other than this podcast, uh, <laughs> any favorite podcasts that you would recommend folks checking out because you've enjoyed them so much? Yeah, uh, I've really gotten into comedy and the business of comedy. So one mm. podcast that I uh, listen to fanatically is Asian Not Asian, and that's done by a couple of comedians, Mike Nguyen and Fumi Abe. Uh, and so they put that podcast out weekly. I highly recommend it. I love all of their guest interviews and finding about different people's experiences. Oh, great. I'll have to check that out. Um, and where's the best place for folks to follow you if they just want to see what you're up to or um, follow you on social media? Sure. I post um, occasionally on Twitter. So I'm at Judy Lai Norling. Um, and then you can learn more about Carbon Mapper at carbonmapper.org. Awesome. Thanks so much for the time, uh, Judy. Really appreciate it. Uh, your story is so inspiring. And I'm sure, you know, as your parents look back at your life and career that they are and super, uh, super proud of everything you've done and kind of built off all their hard work and, and efforts. So thank you for your time. Thanks for being an inspiration to the Asian uh, American and Asian Canadian community. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends, leave me a review on iTunes, or drop me a note on our website, asiantechleaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well, stay healthy, and follow your heart. See you soon.